Hi, good evening. Uh, welcome to the National Academy. I'm Marshall Price, the Curator of Modern and Contemporary Art. It's wonderful to see so many people here. For the final installment of the 2009 season, um, but I would like to remind everyone that beginning in the fall, uh, we will be starting a new season of the review panel, and I hope to see you all back here uh, sometime in the future. I'm going to introduce the moderator for tonight's panel, and he will then go ahead and introduce um, the critics. Our moderator this evening is David Cohen, he is the director of the Studio School, the New York Studio School uh, Gallery, and he is also the editor of artcritical.com. So, before I hand it over to David, though, I should thank uh, the New York State Council on the Arts and the Department of Cultural Affairs, who have been gracious enough to fund this ongoing program. So with that being said, David Cohen. Thank you very much indeed, Marshall, and thanks to all the wonderful staff at the National Academy for making this program possible and for hosting it and for seeing to all the, the technical uh, details. And a, th a thanks also this evening, actually, to uh, staff at the New Museum for their, their cooperation in making our uh, visual uh, presentation possible. And uh, an acknowledgement also of the wonderful custodians of the New Museum. There are not so many museums in the world where in, an, in a temporary exhibition of, of so many artists with such exotic names, um, the uh, custodians know where everything is and can point you in that direction and give you uh, some uh, personal description of the work on, on route to the work. So uh, a, 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 a salute to them for their interest mm. and diligence. Um, let me introduce you, first of all, to the concept of the review panel. Is this, put your hands up if this is the first time you've been to a review panel here at the Academy. Wonderful. Well, the um, format couldn't be simpler tonight. Uh, ordinarily what we do is we go and see three, four, five exhibitions that we've all agreed to see uh, ahead of time, and, uh, and then the, the, the panelists discuss it among themselves, and time is allotted for the audience to let off steam and um, share their own comments or probe us with their questions. Uh, tonight, as we've done a couple of times before in, in, with the Whitney Biennial, uh, the focus is exclusively one exhibition, but uh, an exhibition, obviously, of uh, very many uh, diverse uh, artists. Um, so, uh, if you're here, you know the title of the event is Younger Than Pontius Pilate. Uh, in fact, uh, the panel, uh, if I were absent from it, could be called Younger Than Judas Iscariot, because all the panelists tonight are, uh, or meet, the same criterion as the Younger Than Jesus generational at the New Museum of being no older than 33. Um, uh, they have other things in common. They are all practicing artists. Uh, they uh, have, have or do or write for two august uh, publications or, or uh, periodicals. Uh, the Brooklyn Rail um, and or artcritical.com um, and uh, there are individual things I could tell you about them Ben LaRocco is uh, uh, represented by Janet Konotowski Gallery 
um, Becky Brown uh, was a prize winner at the last Invitational here at uh, the National Academy and um, is enrolled as a mo in the MFA program at Hunter. Um, uh, Nora uh, Griffin uh, is uh, just been accepted to the program at Columbia, and um, uh, uh, Colleen Asper, uh, uh, besides uh, the attributes of, of all the panelists, uh, has, uh, is, is the co-convener of a very exciting interventional panel series, the hottest rival in town to the review panel, uh, the known as Ad Hoc Vox. So uh, wonderful to have the competition uh, <laughs> under my control for uh, uh, one well, You'll have to come and join us sometime. We'll have to come as a guest there and you can take your revenge. Excellent. Wonderful. So uh, the format this evening, which uh, uh, strays from the usual, uh, do we really need to dim the lights? I don't think we do, actually. It's, the, the image is quite clear for everybody. That's good, because uh, rather, than, <coughs> rather than having that... Um, Martin Creed experience of lights going on and off. We're simply going to um, keep images um, up on the screen uh, through the evening. Um, what I thought we would do is uh, have a little bit of general discussion about the Invitational uh, and uh, look at some images together. Uh, and then um, for the bulk of the uh, program, um, uh, artists, uh, members of the panel, are uh, going to share with us some descriptions of specific works which we all think are of some interest and worthy of discussion and we'll, we'll look at a few images that way, a few artists rather that way. But uh, before we get cracking, please take this moment to welcome and thank our panel. Great. Well, Courtney, if you could just dab us through. This is, these, uh, in, these shots are actually up upstairs, the archival section on the fifth floor. Yeah. Uh, that's where there's a little uh, display of images as well. Um, these are right downstairs in the foyer. Um, panelists, just chip in as soon as you know the artists. Cause is that Liz Glynn? Liz Glynn. Great. Uh, that big installation in the project room with those signage. Painter on the... Kristen Bridge. Uh, does this not look as good as it could? Is that right? People, can people see the images? Are they clear enough? Yeah. Good. Good. Uh, Josh Smith. Uh, uh, Makes me a little worried if he is younger than Jesus because he seems to be around forever. But there you are. <laughs> um, anyone? Brendan Fowler. Thank you. Oh, yes, the other Fowler. Yes. Well. Yes. What? I know. So it's a detail. This is the poet, this is the, not okay. quite so quick. Katarina Seda? Yes. Good. This is actually just a quiz to see whether the panelists have been to the <laughs> exhibition and can, uh, this, is, this is like a, uh, an exam, an old-fashioned exam that you would get for the Institute of Fine Arts. 
is this a Fry Angelico? Mm-hmm. If not, explain why. Okay, that's, that's good. Let's um, pause. Let's go back. Oh, Luke Fowler. That's strange. Didn't we have the sleeping woman? Could you go back one? Oh, I see. Carry on. That, that was left stray. Carry on. We have the labels. Oh, yeah. One label is stray. Never mind. It's a, a, stray, a lost sheep. It's very appropriate. <laughs> Everything's New Testament tonight. Um, it's Matt Keegan. Matt Keegan. Right. That's a little more Islamic than Christian. <laughs> Great. That's the hallway with the uh, Harris and Benita. Uh, right. Is that Stephen Rhodes? Yes. Right. Okay, this is just giving us some visual flavour. Oh, that was supposed to be at the beginning. It's out of... never mind. Ah, good. (laughs) Let's pause there, not to fall asleep, but to um, um, perhaps even wake up with with, uh, uh, some some preliminary thoughts. By the way, it's younger than Pontius Pilate to justify my presence, because otherwise it could, as I say, be younger than Judas Iscariot. Um, uh, so if there are any crucifixions this evening, I wash my hands of them. But I also promise that that's the last uh, New Testament pun, because um, I think, you know, I know this is the art world, but there may be a Christian in the audience, so uh, uh, enough is enough. As uh, I'm not sure I'm entirely comfortable with that title. No. Right. <laughs> Or, or as Jesus would have said, enough already. Okay. That's yours. Thank you. We'll turn it into wine later. And, but actually, we will turn it into wine later because there is a reception to, to thank you for all coming to this wonderful event um, and some breaking of bread and blessings at, at the end. Okay. But as I said, enough already with the biblical puns. Um, Biblical, uh, biblical and prophetic aside, uh, panelists, would, would, would any of you uh, agree or care to disagree with this? My, my observation that um, in comparison with, uh, say, the last couple of Whitney biennials, there seemed to be uh, almost a fairly sort of sober sense, uh, um, a lack of... Uh, 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 there seemed to be um, a sobriety uh, in the mood uh, of this event, is that fair to say? Uh, anybody in the work itself, or in the in in most of the work and the selection? I think so. Uh, I also noticed an attention to um, to craft and to the handmade that I don't re- an, almost an emphasis on it certainly in certain works that I don't recall seeing um, in the two prior biennials. Right, or even in the prior, the opening group show, perhaps, of, of, of the New Museum, the unmonumental show, uh, was it uh, in marked contrast to that, anybody, or did it feel, um, did it feel New Museum-y? <laughs> is, is that a, a, a valid can sense? It, can we say both? <laughs> well, even though there were so many artists, it seemed like um, it didn't feel overcrowded, and it seemed like pieces were given 
the correct amount of space. So my problem with unmonumental was that there, I just there wasn't enough space to really see things, mm-hmm. and I felt like I could get a handle on every artist in the show. So yeah, not not a salon hang, but in fact a space given to individual artists to have multiple works. Yeah, I guess I was just when you asked the question, I was curious um, what a drunken exhibition might look like, or how that might be in contrast, and what defines sobriety in an exhibition. Um, or whether that's a good thing. So I was well, sort of yeah. stuck on that. <laughs> um, I was just thinking perhaps of the biennial, two biennials ago at the Whitney, the one with the uh, day for night theme, mm-hmm. where there was a great deal of uh, humor in the curatorial uh, choices. Um, a lot of the works were ironic to the point of not being even by the artists that were credited with having done it or... Um, uh, uh, that, that, that irony was, was deeply pervasive, whereas here mm-hmm. um, I felt, and, and perhaps uh, that, that there was a, a sense of um, earnestness in a lot of the works that seemed to be uh, taking, seemed to be concerned with weighty moral or spiritual issues rather than um, being quite as art for art about art oriented as oriented as is often the case in documentaries, biennials, biennales. Um, well, uh, I think there are also plenty of exceptions to that. I mean, Ryan Tricarton, I think it would be pretty impossible to talk about without talking about irony or um, AIDS 3D. And I think that was one of my problems with the show, is that it almost seems impossible to talk about as a group. And having the kind of curatorial premise be age seems to me almost as arbitrary as having you know, a curatorial premise be um, hair color or, um, mm-hmm. you know, just. I mean, I, I feel like some of the works in the show addressed being of that specific generation. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, to name Ryan Treecarton again, that certainly seems up to address the being of the sort of millennial generation. But much of the work just seemed to be there because it was made by that generation. I just, I don't know, I'd be curious to hear if people thought that that was kind of a useful point of departure mm-hmm. for a show. Well, it's that certainly, and also the fact that there's no real um, attempt made seemingly to uh, explain or possibly justify, given how inflammatory it is, the title itself. Right. I mean, I don't know how to explain it to myself other than as a, a, a bit of uh, entrepreneurial marketing. That's, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's yes. how I tend to think of it because in the absence of any other explanation. Well, marketing is kind of a big theme of the show, actually, I think in a lot of ways, um, you know, general packaging and things like that. Um, And it's definitely a lot in the texts that are written about the show. And um, I think that the the Younger Than Jesus title, I mean, I just took it really tongue in cheek, you Mm know, Um, like this sense of this figure who is the most famous um, figure in the history of civilization um, and died at this age. And... Um, you know, what have we done by this age, I guess, <laughs> sort of how I saw it, maybe as a member of the generation, so. Well, it's a tough, com- it's a tough sort of standard they're setting. Uh, right. <laughs> which we're supposed to view the exhibition. Well, I, right. I sort of, I was um, sort of thinking about how John Lennon said that the Beatles were bigger than Jesus in 1966 and how people were shocked and horrified by that, but I think he really meant it both seriously but also very lightly, and I think a lot of the works in the show kind of have that there is a seriousness to it, but there's also a lot of humor and lightness and craft, mm-hmm. what you were saying, Ben. So. But if, you, if the show was called Younger Than Raphael, it would actually raise the bar even higher, though, because uh, 
uh, <coughs> we'd have to be, or even younger than Mozart would be a little tougher. So uh, that, that might be next, though. That might that might be coming yeah. up. Yes, yes. <coughs> but I mean, there's there's two ways of looking at the question. One is to say, is being younger than 33 a good premise for an exhibition? Uh, and the other is to say, uh, is just to say, well, don't even ask that question. Um, of course, it is that uh, you know. Uh, a cu curators of an institution committed to, to newness and to the currency and the future of art um, can't not be concerned with uh, what art looks like by very young practitioners, but not so young that they haven't been through, paid for an MFA program at least, or, uh, <coughs> um, and, and 33 shouldn't actually be that old when you consider how much you can achieve, say, in sport by the age of 33. So uh, why don't we just say, yes, it's absolutely obvious that uh, an institution is entitled to do a show of uh, very young art, and then ask the question, um, um, who were the curators of this show, and what, what were the premises? How did they go about making selections? Did, does anyone, did anyone probe or, or worry about that? It seemed that some of the curators were the staff of the new, who are not necessarily, who seem to be older than God. So, um, <coughs> well, it was it was fairly systematic uh, the way they went about organizing it. They solicited names, basically, of artists from professionals in the field in a wide array of countries, um, very international. They then narrowed that pool down. Um, I think mostly drawing, as far as I could tell, drawing on expertise from within. Um, the institution and whittled away at it until they finally got their number. But it was, um, it seemed like a fairly systematic approach. Um, try, it seemed like it tried to cast the net as, uh, as, as widely as possible rather than um, relying on a several curator's vision. And it, and it is nonetheless a, a curatorial venture rather than, rather than being sort of democratic, for instance, through a submission and jury process. I mean, is that, um, is that would that not have perhaps been a, uh, for, for, uh, for a young artist show? If, if you're dealing with artists this young, should they not perhaps be artists who no one could have heard of? Becky. Um, well, I was just going to just add to the to the process element um, in the sense that I think that social networking and the internet and, and the technologies that are a big theme of the show were also a part of that process that Ben was um, describing in the sense that um, the way that that the way that the net was cast was through the internet and through um, emails that were sent out and um, people and and because it had to be done globally, so you know global network was um, was activated, so to speak. Um, yeah. did, the, did the overall quality seem uh, in any way diminished from the quality of, say, um, previous large group shows that, that, that the panel have seen, at places like uh, the Whitney, the New Museum itself, or one of the art fairs, Pulse, for instance? Did it, did it seem, as you were looking through, that you thought, gosh, this is indeed very young art? Or did it actually look remarkably not dissimilar from, say, Pulse? Well, I don't feel like I walked through it and I felt that it was self-evident that every piece was made by someone under the age of 33. I mean, certainly there were pieces that I, I felt that way about. 
But I guess, and I don't know if this is um, disobeying your command, David, but it, you know, it was hard for me to, to ignore that curatorial premise and how I kind of felt about it when mm. viewing the works. So I couldn't sort of let that go. And even artists who I tremendously respect seeing their work in a different context, it was hard for me not to try and weave it into um, you know, the, the, the validity of this um, kind of curatorial premise that I still feel very shaky about. I strongly agree. Well, I, I think for me, I just kind of, I, I let that go just to sort of experience the art because um, the art that I had the most direct experiences of, I, I wasn't sort of thinking, how did this person get in? This person's more famous than other people. Or um, I think the most successful pieces, like Ryan Tricartan's, I think was one of them, um, it just allowed you to have a direct experience with it. Um, I mean, Ryan Ducarton especially, I feel like it's impossible to have an experience of without thinking about all the hype that's um, you know, been built around him. And I'm even thinking about things like the sort of um, mythology of Ryan Ducarton's entry into the art world. Like he was found through Friendster, which now seems you know, He's also ancient. enormously <laughs> but, loud and unpleasant, which makes well, him easy to notice. <laughs> Well, I think... Well, I should try I think, that myself. Um, it sounds like a good... <laughs> I don't mean that necessarily in a bad way. Right, right. <laughs> I think it actually takes... The, the pieces that really are successful just take a lot of time, viewers' time, even if they appear to be something that um, is loud and abrasive and just seems to be crash entertainment type of thing, just giving it time, being in that room for... You know the pieces. The videos are over an hour, so just giving it your time for me, it was, it was re rewarding. Um. I think it's maybe time we we moved on and saw some more images, uh, uh, Courtney. Let's have a look. Um, yes, this is actually um, the work of uh, Luke Fowler. Um, Becky, do you want to give us some some thoughts or descriptions of of, of Fowler's project? Sure. Um, he um, he's from Glasgow, and he does. He's a musician um, and a filmmaker. And um, I thought one of the one of the most interesting um, artists in the show. Although I, I continue to have reservations about about the work, um, and I've only seen this one work and some others that are available on YouTube. But the piece is called um, "What You See Is Where You're At," and it's um, it's sort of a it's a an, it's an impressionistic documentary about um, a psychological experiment by um, the psychologist R. D. Lang um, that took place at Kingsley Hall in London um, in the late '60s, and um, it's basically it was a place where patients, um, schizophrenic people, psychotic people, live together with their therapists in a sort of community where their behaviors were um, not so much, you know, treated or, um, or, or chastised, but, but kind of embraced and, and allowed to kind of be worked through. So it's sort of seeing psychosis or schizophrenia as not so much um, a disease, but um, something um, but as just sort of another state of reality. Um, so all of those things are sort of inherent in the work, but the work itself is sort of a collaged film format where um, he's, he's taken pieces of existing documentaries on this subject and sort of cut them up and re-edited them um, along with other sort of voiceovers and fragmented pieces of text, and it's very hard to understand, and the effect is sort of... Um, in a sense, mimicking the effect of perhaps being schizophrenic yourself. Um, and I'm sort of still thinking about how much 
how much that works. Mm. Have I gone on too long? No, um, no, that's good. Because with a lot of, I mean, I think with a lot of these works, there is a lot of background and a lot of sort of um, either academic or historical um, pieces of knowledge that 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 are that are sort of inherent. Um, so it's almost hard to even think about the work without without knowing without kind of having that background. Is that all the images for? Um, is that the only image? No, oh, oh, right. Well, these images don't give much of a sense. I mean, no, it's, it's, it's a obviously, video, obviously, it's a yes. film, so. Yes. How, um, how did you get on with the film, Nora? Um, I found it interesting for, I just wanted to know more about the story, and I know it's, it's based on another film um, about Lang, and that, that kind of, it, it was impetus to want to see that film and want, want to kind of mm-hmm. learn more about it, but I think I had the same problems that Becky had, that it, it um, it sort of brought brought you halfway there, and then it seemed a little out of place in the show too, having this a narrative video. Um, but it's I think interesting in context with the other piece, uh, Karen Seiter, mm. that um, is another video that's it's sort of taken from from a kind of film genre but brought into a gallery space but it kind of leaves you half halfway someplace yes I think we'll, we'll talk about her in a little in a little while actually yes it was another noteworthy um, topic but as uh, uh, Colleen did you did you feel that you were uh, looking at art or or that you were exposed to uh, uh, an interesting topic through a somewhat um, hazy documentary um, I guess both. I mean, I found it absolutely compelling to watch. I think it's kind of undeniably compelling. My reservation about it is, I, I think, always my reservation um, when when faced with this sort of um, fetishizing that I feel like art sometimes makes of madness, specifically schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a tendency to kind of um, pathologize the artist and be interested in um, pathology as a place for kind of creativity or or um, artistic impetus. So that was a sort of like immediate red flag for me, but I, you know, I, f- I found it compelling as a narrative. That's obviously an ancient trope, isn't it? It goes right. way beyond the surrealists back to the whole idea of the artist born under Saturn, the sort of romantic notion, Ben, of uh, the artist as nut. Did you uh, have that same problem uh, with the piece, or what was your response? Well, I think, I think uh, Colleen's point is a good one. Um, about the, the fetishizing of the uh, schizophrenic that took place there. And I think that kind of had to do with Lang's uh, approach in the, the hospital he built, too, mm-hmm. which, I, I, as I recall, was to allow mm-hmm. the schizophrenics um, to basically let the disease manifest itself and mm-hmm. sort of talk it out so that it would be an environment in which schizophrenics could mm-hmm. be themselves, so to speak. Yeah. Lang um, was a, a radical. Uh, he, he coined the term anti-psychiatry. Yeah. He was... He was uh, his view was very socially grounded that uh, that, that uh, uh, madness or psych- psychosis were um, uh, primarily socially conditioned. The film was it was disjunctive in the way that um, you imagine some kind of a psychotic break would mm-hmm. render your experience of reality, and I thought that was interesting. Um, but you had I, I find that I found that I had to bear with it a lot of the time. Interesting, but also bar- also also playing along, though, with the with the kind of um, uh, slightly poetic, romantic notion of being unsettled. Yeah, and just the, um, the, the difficulty of the uh, faces themselves. I mean, these mm. were clearly ex- extremely troubled people. Yes. Um, and 
Well, uh, with disease in mind, let's look at the work of AIDS 30, although I'm not actually sure. That 3D. 3D. AIDS 3D. Um, ben, describe this for us. Yeah, well, um, David asked us to pick one artist we were. Um, uh, this is a trade secret. <laughs> oh, sorry. Never mind. <laughs> That's all right, you started now, so continue. <laughs> well, suffice to say, when I first saw this artist's work, uh, I had some qualms about it. Um, AIDS3D is actually two artists, it's a collective. Their names are Daniel Keller and Nick Cosmos. And I described them as a um, Berlin based uh, techno utopian collaborative. It's a little bit of jargon for you. Um, and I think the OMG stands for oh, oh my god, as in oh my god. You think? One of those things. <laughs> uh, is, is, it, is it explained in the text? <laughs> You're a part of this generation, Ben. <laughs> I should know. You're the generation that doesn't read the label. If you read the label, it said it stands for oh my god, the popular and exclamaton of the internet. There, I guess that I, I, speaking of irony, the, the work felt very ironic. There, it didn't give you much. It didn't. I didn't feel it gave me much to look at. And actually, I, uh, from the slide though, it's it's a dingy slide. So just just remind us physically what we get. You get a monolith with uh, light emblazoned OMG at the top, and then these sort of sticks you see at the sides actually have flames at their end, which, and, and the, the room is uh, more dimly lit so that the flames stand out. There is a little bit of drama about the whole thing. Um, but it, it didn't win me over. But actually, the, the, the more I looked at, uh, at um, AIDS 3D, they, they, they began to, uh, just a few of their demands um, as a collaborative are free, free Wi-Fi, uh, no more DVD region codes and standardized international voltage. All good things, I thought. So, so they, they got me halfway there. Excellent. But none of that is part of the work on view. Right? No, uh, should I say more about that? I mean, it's... <laughs> My only advice to them is, is that their names are uh, Keller and Cosmos. They don't need any clever... I mean, well, I, if they just need to kill a Cosmos, that's a pretty... Pretty great title. I was actually frustrated with the absence of um, visual stimulation or uh, sensory stimulation in the piece. Um, what I've said about it, it's more or less what I felt it offered visually. Mm. But the more I learned about them as a collaborative, I mean, I think that's actually rather how art works. Often I find the things that I'm most turned off by when I first see them, the next time I see them, um, especially if I've learned a little bit about their... Is that going to happen for you, Nora, do you um, think? Do you think now you know that they're advocating free Wi-Fi, you're, no, you're going to have that, a that doesn't visual affect epiphany me. No, next time? No, doesn't affect no. no. Um, one of my problems with this piece, which is a problem with some other pieces, is that they were part of a, a larger performance or installation that we just read about in the text or in the background essays, and we just have to imagine for ourselves. And... It seems to be like we're, we're uh, losing a lot by not seeing it in that greater context. And mm. for me, if I think I read that H3D puts on performances and they have a kind of collective going in Berlin where people, mm -hmm. I can just imagine what, what it would be like. And they're also very young. I think they're only 22. They're the youngest people in the show. Oh. So that kind of also gives it mm. another, another slant. If they're having like a dance party around this piece, what is that? How does that affect what it would be in another context? It would be more fun. Yeah. <laughs> is there any visual merit in this piece, Colleen, or is it just simply a corporate logo for a fun young collective? Yeah, I don't, I mean, visual merit, I'm not quite sure how to answer that, but I, I think my experience of it was just like, 
you know, I felt like I got it like that. I was like, oh, oh my God, you know, it's made into this kind of exalted minimalist sort of plinth. It's playing a joke on minimalism. It's playing a joke on internet culture. It's exalting very casual speech, but yet the speech itself is, oh my God, it plays in with the title of Younger Than Jesus. You know, I felt like it was a joke that I sort of very instantaneously understood and then was sort of over and moved on. Um, so yeah, that was my problem. Can you say something possibly about their choice to be labeled as Hates 3D and not as themselves and how you related to your fetishizing schizophrenia comment earlier? That they're not representing themselves as individuals here. Right, I mean... What you're seeing in the work isn't actually the work. Well, you know, I don't know a ton about AIDS um, 3D as a collective, actually. Maybe Ben could speak to that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm interested in artists who work collectively. I myself have worked collectively um, before, so I just sort of took that for granted, that there was two artists who chose to work together under this name. Um, I mean, the name itself is kind of curious, but I, you know, did you learn anything about why they chose that title? Um, not explicitly. I, I guess I in intuited a few things. Um, well, there's something ironic about the piece, right? And AIDS is autoimmune uh, deficiency. Um, so, and 3D is a kind of virtual, um, um, I guess, experience. So there's something about remove, I think, in the title. You're at, you're at a loss, for one thing, deficient um, in immunity. And for another, there's a kind of simulation going on. So I thought that all of that served um, the, the ironic um, tone of the work. I also thought of it as like a little bit of a bad boy gesture, like, you know, you 10, 15 years ago, it would have been very taboo, I think, to make a light-hearted joke about AIDS. Um, that was, yeah, that some was of, There's some little pithy transgression there. It's only, I mean, in French, AIDS is SIDA, and uh, is, is AIDS AIDS in German? Does anyone know? Uh, and, and could it be that in, in Germany it doesn't, wouldn't have that connotation, and therefore might be, as it were, innocent of a connection with the disease. I, it's a remote possibility, but I throw that out as a possibility. Anyone here German and know German and what the German for AIDS is? Okay, well, let's, um, let's move on from uh, OMG AIDS 3D to um, very dimly represented uh, uh, the work of Cyprien Gaillard, um, Cyprien Gaillard, Colleen. Um, Describe this for us. Well, um, describing I'm going to have to do because this isn't a very representative picture. But it's basically a, around a 30-minute video, and it's sort of structurally divided into three parts. The um, first part opens up with just a very quick still shot of a, um, a bit of architecture that's from Belgrade. I wonder, are there any other images? Oh, OK. Um, so yes, imagine you see a... Um, Ruthless tower block. <laughs> Yes. And then it immediately moves into a, a scene of two um, fight clubs. It's a fight club in St. Petersburg, I guess, but it's two gangs of men, one mostly in blue t-shirts and one mostly in red, and you sort of see them advancing on one another. And they have a fight that, um, you know, it seems pretty earnest, but um, also somewhat playful. And then it switches from that to the um, next scene, which is what you're sort of seeing blurrily represented, which is a, um, 
a housing complex also, um, this one outside of Paris, and there's a light display and a fireworks display on this housing complex before it's demolished. And then the third and final sequence is um, shot from a um, micro-light airplane, which I guess was um, illegally shot from a micro-light airplane, but you're sort of hovering over these snow-covered buildings, um, this in Kiev, but also another housing complex, which I guess um, these sort of like public housing complexes are um, kind of a, you know, a common sort of feature of, of Cyprian's work. And this... Um, this was one piece where I guess I was able to do what Nora seemed better able to do with most of the work in the show and kind of forget the context and enjoy the piece. Um, I mean, I think in part because it was a 30-minute video and my initial response to it was just kind of fascination. I, you know, I told David that it was one of the pieces that I'd like to talk about and then I, I re-saw the show yesterday thinking I would sort of try and get past that initial fascination and see what sort of was um, more deeply there in the piece, but I think part of my interest in it is in it, its sort of resisting scrutability in some way. Um, you know, I mean, there's there's this um, music that plays throughout that kind of creates this drama, and, and each um, sequence is very spectacular. I mean, to see these you know these huge group of people fighting, and then to see this fireworks display. I mean, what's sort of more spectacle than fireworks? Um, and then you know this sort of aerial view. And there's definitely a you know kind of like political implication in, in this housing project, um, and you know I, I feel like I'm seeing something that's at least to me culturally unfamiliar in terms of the um, you know the, I mean this was shot in Paris, Russia, the Ukraine, Siberia, but there's also a very familiar structure. I mean I feel like the um, the, the structure of um, you know of these like two warring factions or of this. Um, you know, like very traditionally sort of um, sublime landscape is something I'm familiar with from both historical painting and also from cinema, but none of it quite adds up to, um, you know, a very like clear or didactic message, which Mm. I feel like a lot of the other work in the show did for me. Isn't that perhaps that lack of clear didacticism uh, and the, but the strong identification with a very specific motif, namely, um, brutalist housing in a state of decline, um, doesn't that give the piece really a very strong poetic sensibility? It seemed to me one of the more painterly or or, um, visually kind of accomplished works in the show. Would you agree with that? Could could anyone share or vindicate that view? Yeah, I I would definitely agree with that. I I found it one of the most compelling um, works because it seemed to it just seemed to have a real presence um, in terms of these these different scenes, and as you and and the time that it took to to watch these things play out, it, it did become these sort of series of moving paintings, um, and it seemed to be a way that that video was functioning in a different way than say in the Luke Fowler, where there's such a set kind of subject matter, but what you're actually seeing doesn't. There, there's a disconnect between um, what you see and um, what you're um, supposed to be learning, whereas in the Cyprian Gayard, it seems that the two were more linked in a certain way, um, more experiential, maybe. I agree also. It's a beautiful piece. Mm. Well, I guess I'm in the minority because I, I didn't really... Visually, I, I really disliked it, actually. The quality of it seemed very, almost murky to me. And um, this thing about being in a room, it's like half a room and you're there with a lot of other people. It didn't, 
it didn't really engage me in the way that I think it engaged other panelists. Well, the screen technically just seemed too big for the resolution of imagery he had, but I yeah. was sort of making allowances. If one could take a DVD home and quietly watch it in a darkened room, I think one would have a better experience of it. But that, I think, one could blame the curators, not the artist. Actually, I actually, I appreciated the, that about yeah, it. I, like I mean, I think that's too. what added to the kind of painterly quality. And I actually thought at some point, like, this is so low res. Like, what would it be like to be seeing these really um, kind of, like, massive um, shots if it was high quality? And, and then I immediately thought, oh, that would feel so much like, a you know, like epic Gursky. cinema. Yeah. Mm. Yes, one, on the, uh, yes, the Lincoln Center. Yes, the Sony IMAX might be the place to see it. Uh, are you saying that would be too much and wrong, or are you saying that would be yes. awesome? Too much and wrong. Okay, <laughs> all right. So, so you like the grainy... Uh, I mean, it, it is very um, vertiginous, that, especially the drone scene going over that. Just extraordinary. Um, I mean, we've all grown up, I'm sure, in cities which have brutalist housing projects, but we're not talking about co-op city here. We're talking about um, uh, just the most extraordinary... You can see just the, the result of obscene kind of collectivization policies over decades that you've got an entire city that's in the, completely in the, in, the, in the countryside but these mammoth brutalist uh, projects are cheek by jowl with one another in these um, soulless kind of landscapes snow helps of course and then the whole camera is shaking and giving you a headache that's um, it's all a very specific experience yeah, I mean, I think also the fact that there's the scene of the gang fight, but in the scenes that focus on the buildings, the one with the light show and the um, snowy aerial view of Kiev, I mean, those don't have any people. And, and the way that the camera moves around these sort of, um, these structures that are there to house people, but we don't see any of the inhabitants. And it has a really, mm-hmm. it has a really sort of empty um, feeling. Yeah, I think. and no signs of social life or no, uh, which in a way those those houses were originally intended to promote. Right. Yes. Okay. Let's have a look at our next show. Uh, or oh, sorry, our next artist in the show, Harris. Uh, okay, I didn't even get a chance to read it, which is just as well. Um, uh, uh, Nora, tell us about Harris Epaminonda. Um, Uh, Harris Epaminonda was, um, she's from Cyprus originally, and um, she now lives and works in Berlin. And um, she works in uh, two medium, in, um, in, uh, she makes video, and she also makes collages. And um, she, she, the collages at the New Museum are from, from art history textbooks that she's cut up, and um, has cut into, and you can kind of see a history within the image itself, and for me, they really seemed modernist with the capital M. They seemed to uh, bring back an idea of a collage work of Max Ernst or um, a Dadaist artist. She seemed to be um, not nostalgic for those artists or not um, reactionary, but it's it was as if she was bringing it into um, into our time and. Um, they seem like very quiet lyrical works too, which I appreciated, even though they were in a dark hallway and that might have seemed like a hindrance and there was also a film playing right next to them. It kind of gave them a dramatic quality. There was a light on each one and um, I think it was a good way to see it in that context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, um, so, what would your question be to the panelists? Um, is there what, what's what's the is there an issue that you had with the work? Um, well, maybe the issue being about history and what does it mean to have this work being done in this in this day and age? Mm -hmm. um, is it being crowded out by the other much louder works? Mm -hmm. Becky, and, would you um, say that this was a uh, pleasantly anachronistic work, or would you say it was strikingly original work within the context? Um, well, those are sort of the same thing. Pleasantly <laughs> anachronistic or strikingly original. Um, They're the same thing? I, well, I, 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 pleasantly. <laughs> oh, okay. Are they anachronistic or are they original? Okay, <laughs> gotcha. Um, to me, they were, I, they were original. I, I, I really responded positively to them. Um, I felt that, I mean, certainly, you know, anything could be called anachronistic to some extent. I mean, from conceptualism to the other paintings in the show, which we haven't gotten to yet, to um, any even of the videos in the show. So I, I think mm -hmm. that I don't even know if anachronism is is useful nowadays since mm -hmm. so much has been done. But I just found them um, very, very compelling um, in terms of rewarding close close viewing. Um, mm. Could be a personal thing, sort of share some sensibilities with uh, what I am interested in, in my own work. But um, yeah, they were very, very um, rewarding to look at. Right. Any, any comments, Colleen? Yeah, I mean, I guess I would have to agree. I find I found them pretty rewarding to look at. Um, I mean, I feel like they have, uh, I think you said lyrical simplicity. I, I think that's putting it pretty well. And I think they had um, the sort of quality of, you know, even though the work is totally different, I'm thinking of a painter like Toma Apps, where I feel like when I see her work, I kind of understand how it's made. And it, it, it makes me, I feel like it puts me in a mindset that I imagine is similar to the one I would be in if I were making it myself. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's something very legible about how they're made, and that was really satisfying. I, I don't really know what I made, though, of the source material. I mean, it seemed like the sort of, um, you know, the kind of like ready entertainment that one gets as like a young person flipping through art history books and a desire to kind of rework that material. Um, but, but beyond that, I wasn't really sure where to go. Yeah, I... Yeah. I also thought they were very beautiful, the collages. I, I didn't feel they were anachronistic, but I did feel that, that they were one of the, the fewer pieces in the show that made, that sort of wore their history on their sleeve. I got a, a sense of um, um, a strong connection to a type of architecture and a, to, to a place, um, a strong feeling for um, the, a certain type of urban um, communal area. Uh, and a, a long span of time, and certainly Ernst, um, as you mentioned, Nora, and uh, a strong sense of art history at work in them too. So if that, I don't think that makes them anachronistic. Okay. Although, yeah, I think it's a good moment actually to bring in the audience and see if there's any feeling from the audience about the four artists that we've uh, homed in on so far: Luke Fowler, the AIDS 3D Collective, Cyprian Gayard, and Harris Epaminan. Ep Parminonda. Uh, is there a roving mic this evening? Yes, there is. Wonderful. So wait for Sandy, who is instantly our new director of education here. I just had a reaction to this last piece. Um, just, just for, concerning the, the sort of uh, the possibly problematic 
nature of, a, of this classic uh, sort of Western artifact, uh, Western civilization artifact, and and the, the the function that I immediately sort of imagine that it plays is is, is that that there's a there's sort of striking uh, anthropologizing of uh, of of this sort of specific sort of strain of, of uh, young people art or, or kind of a new camp. Um, and and the and the and the, this kind of new camp uh, of of, of uh, youth art that's often sort of uh, shared in an economy of other young people isn't particularly interesting unless you can sort of put it in an almost anthropological context, which I think this show does. And and uh, and the sort of the possibly problematic. Uh, ancient Western civilization artifacts. Okay. This particular show does a sort of uh, striking uh, function of, of sort of bringing, the, connecting the sort of That's, thank you very much. That's an interesting context. Uh, yeah. Any other comments? So the four artists we've been uh, thinking, yes, the lady just behind this, the gentleman who spoke. Uh, if we could wait for the mic. And, yeah. Um, I guess, I'm wondering what you guys think about the comparison to like a pictures generation show. Um, a few of the artists, maybe like the Luke Fowler uh, video, it's cutting up works that have already been made compared to maybe the Cyprian. Uh, yes, Cyprian. Cyprian Gayard. Using his own eye and creating this new thing. Do you think there's like maybe this divide between? This would be another angle of maybe this more, I'm going to use, you know, how can I interact with history and kind of recontextualize it or, I mean, this almost seems like a joke too. It's making like a fighting scene or she, um, out of this. I mean, taking like a history book that's a construction, um, mm -hmm. itself. I mean, it seems like there's sort of content there. Yeah. You know, so it's just sort of problematizing in maybe a picture generation shows. Okay, thank you. That's I think maybe this picture is a little bit misleading for the artist. Mm. It's a small uh, work, and uh, it's, you know, we're talking about something about this big, right? Yeah. And um, it, it's, it's in a sequence of collages, and I think it's, see, it's, it's not that deconstructive. It's, it's, it's like almost like an Ellsworth Kelly cutout. Yeah, um, yeah, Ellsworth Kelly comes to mind. Yes, so it's not a very, uh, unlike the Pictures Generation show that you mentioned, this is not really heavily subversive or deconstructive. It seemed to be perhaps in my... It's, it's, it's a very modest. Very it's, it's a sort of mm. modest, modernist intervention, uh, spatial and chromatic rather than um, thematic. That expresses it properly. Uh, lady in the front row. Are the, are the four artists, could you tell me where they came from, what country? Maybe you can give me a point of reference. I don't remember too much in terms of what I've mm -hmm. seen. Well, I think, that, I think actually everybody who introduced the artists mentioned Luke Fowler is from Glasgow. Uh, the AIDS collective is from, 3D collective is from Berlin. Well, they're actually American, but they live in Berlin. They live they're in Berlin. expatriates. Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> then, I, then that's worth pointing out. Uh, Galliard, is that the name? Is, is French, uh, although the 
the subject matter is uh, East European, and uh, Epaminonda mm -hmm. is, we were told, Cypriot, so, and now living in Berlin, right? So I think we got the geography down on all of them. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Oh. Well, uh, uh, so yes. Did anyone go to the lecture or the panel discussion that they had at the new uh, uh, museum? No. Mm -hmm. Which one? I, th I think it was the first one where they had mostly East Germans. Um, I don't think that no. I went, but I think they've had a lot of events related to well, the show. Well, I went to one, and the first one, I think it was, because it was just in the beginning of the exhibition, um, they had shown a photograph of several women in a field and with a bush on and white uh, um, jackets, and they were all standing there with like a sickle. And the person that was hosting it asked, where or at what time do you think this was photographed? I had said in 1995, another person said 1923. Actually, it was done in 1999. And I felt that the people that were on the panel were very much like that photograph. They were not interacting with their art as much as I had thought. Um, I had asked each one, how did you get to the point of your art? Because translation seemed to be somewhat difficult. And they said that they had no outside, uh, like cue ball, big hitting, another ball, no reaction to their environment because their environment is kind of like dead, like the picture. Right. Okay. People who are standing at the back and are uh, homeless, as it were, there's a whole lovely row at the front of you, fancy, of uh, very comfortable seats. So uh, why don't you take your seats and why don't we um, progress now to, to a few more artists um, who, who uh, arrested our attention at uh, the new museum. Oh yes, uh, Karen Sitter is actually the Israeli, uh, Berlin-based Israeli filmmaker. Uh, her name has already been mentioned in relation to uh, uh, Luke uh, Fowler. Uh, so, so Becky, as you took us through Luke Fowler, what do you think of uh, Karen Sitter? Um, well, <laughs> it's an interesting um, comparison because her, where, where his work sort of takes its jumping off point from, from something real, something based in, in documentary, she's creating a completely artificial scenario um, with, with fictitious characters um, spouting ridiculous um, fragments also of text. But um, they do use a similar method in terms of fragmentation, um, in terms of overabundance of words and language and the sort of, um, the sort of surplus of, of dialogue, um, if you will. So I guess, to, to, should I describe it? Because I, yeah. again, this doesn't give, no, give no, much we, idea. We it's a four minute film in which um, what you see is is a number of people sort of squished into an, a, an apartment, kind of moving around. They're all scantily clad, um, wearing underwear, or or one of them might be naked, um, or you know, very very little clothing. And it's all women for the first sort of two thirds of the film, and they're all just they're they're kind of talking very fast. And there is a narrative, but it's hard to to pick it up right away. You have to watch it a few times to sort of to figure out the narrative. Um, but 
and ultimately they're, they're, the women are preparing for the arrival of some men um, who they may mate with in some fashion, but ultimately um, they, they seem to kill the men. But all of this sounds very sort of violent, but it's but it's it's not because it's so it's so removed from from reality um, because it, it feels much more like a kind of puppet theater than um, than than anything that we might take seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, so should I leave yes. it there for now? I I'm very tempted to leave it there. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was pretentious drivel, but uh, maybe uh, uh, Colleen. Would you like to... No, actually, I, I have to wholeheartedly agree with pretentious drivel. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, it was actually embarrassing to watch, which almost could be to its credit, except for the fact that I I still think no. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, and there was some sort of loose narrative that there was the, the older woman was, um, you know, at first, like, very proud of her body and talking about how she felt like she looked like a 16-year-old girl and the two younger women were trying to cover her up. And so, I mean, I feel like you could kind of you know, there seemed like a ready kind of narrative in place about, mm-hmm. um, you know, age, which also is sort of appropriate to the show and yeah. desire. But, uh, yeah, it just really went nowhere for me. The work was called Der Spiegel, The Mirror, and The Mirror was a rather heavy-handed trope in this work, I found. Uh, ben, did you, did you feel that this was um, uh, profoundly deconstructive or um, <laughs> not? Um, per- perplexing. Um... I struggled to to watch it all the, the full four minutes, I guess. Um, no, it was, they managed to a make challenge. A, they managed to make a room full of very very attractive women extremely uninteresting. Um, and that's I, that's another thing about yes. it is that visually it's so unappealing um, from the tone of the from the the visual look of the video, and also the the people themselves. There's a kind of ugliness about it, and. I was surprised when Godard was mentioned as some sort of reference point um, because this had it had nothing in common with that kind of visual beauty and it was in the same hallway as uh, the collages we saw yes. earlier by uh, Epaminonda. That's a striking uh, difference. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was kind of a remarkable difference. The Imagine, mm-hmm. quality of well, one. Yeah. In terms of aesthetics, I think. I mean, mm-hmm. one has an aesthetic concern and the other is sort of dismissing that entirely in favor of something um, to be generous, I could say more literary or to be less generous, pretentious drivel, <laughs> as was said. Um, but it seems to be, I mean, in viewing it, I, I was trying to see its, its merits and I guess it seemed to be more about, about language in a way, which I think is another theme of the show and artist's relationship to language and the characters are speaking in multiple languages and there are subtitles and they're often talking over each other. So, I mean, it's, it's very unpleasant and sort of um, abrasive and difficult. Sophisticated. And, um, sophisticated. Mm. It's very deep. <laughs> well, Ben, you'd have been in trouble if uh, Karen Sitter was given uh, Cyprian Galliard's uh, 30 minutes with a, um, uh, a Ukrainian housing estate, uh, considering sexy. what she did with four minutes with three attractive women. So let's uh, move on to mm. our next uh, artist, who I think is one that Ben is going to... Uh, there we are, some more stills from uh, oh, yeah, Sitters. Yeah. Um, that makes it look more aesthetic than it is. <laughs> right. Um, okay. Yes. Uh, Jakob Julian Zjolkowski. Who oh, I'm going to... Yeah. Um, yes. 
Okay, uh, we got several images from him, including the uh, this one, which is the uh, the big painting, and uh, the, the very complex work, and that's a detail of it. So, so dwell that's on good. that detail, and perhaps yeah. Ben will speak to that. Yeah, this this was the painting that um, I was very favorably disposed to this to this painter. Um, this was the one. There were roughly six paintings. This was the one very large one. Uh, there was a strong obsessive quality to the paintings. Uh, for example, in this particular painting, uh, the artist Zielkowski uh, painted armies of uh, several armies seemingly fighting each other and other strange creatures, reminiscent of a kind of Hieronymus Bosch type uh, landscape, um, uh, alchemy, that kind of thing. And it was, it's painted in a very unpretentious, uh, very direct sort of way. And it's actually, this artist's work is one of the very few um, ambitious paintings I found in the show. I'm, I've set my bias out up front. I'm a, painting speaks to me like no other medium. So I'm naturally drawn to these. And this was the, the sole uh, reservoir of that type of art in the show. Mm. Yes, not, not, painting's not, Thick on the ground, is it on in this show? Uh, but there are there are several uh, painters. Um, uh, uh, Nora, uh, did you think painting fared okay in Younger Than Jesus? And and was uh, was was Zielkowska uh, your favorite among painters there? Um, I actually I, I thought I, I would like him, but I I um, I didn't I couldn't connect with it. It seemed um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> it's, for me, some of the, his other paintings had kind of bodies and a skull that was kind of confined in some way, and it had this violence that um, it's kind of primitive violence. But I didn't, I didn't really find the truth in it. It didn't, they didn't really seem to be be delivering what it was saying. It was, um, and I think there there weren't a lot of painters in the show, but I, that to me wasn't a problem. I thought it was. Um, this the painting was quieter in the show, and that was there was no way the painting could compete with the other the other mediums. I mean, mm. that's because of its quietness and because of its nuance, or or simply because of their quality. Um, because of the, the well, the the quality, and there's there seemed to be kind of I mean, it's just the works that were chosen, but there was this emphasis on the kind of a primitive folk art, a kind mm. of neo-folk art that we've seen so often and that mm. I thought the examples chosen for this show weren't um, of the highest quality of that kind of art form. Yes. Did you, what, Becky, uh, it seemed to me that um, I, mean, I've, I found Zilkowski uh, interesting uh, but, uh, uh, and, and, and pleasant to look at, but very familiar, uh, very typical of, of the kind of San Francisco street art, for instance, that... Uh, Jeffrey Deitch has been showing heavily for, for several years. Uh, uh, how, how did they strike you? Um, that's, that's an interesting comparison, actually. I hadn't thought of that. Um, and, you know, since it comes from such a faraway place, that, that could say something interesting about global trends. Um, I don't know that it's that interesting, though. Um, I didn't, they didn't particularly strike me. I, I liked them at a distance. Um, and then when I got closer and saw that this sort of this sort of obsessive mark making that I was drawn to was actually encased in these um, cheesy bodies and, and skulls and torsos. Um, I, I, I was kind of repulsed. Um, and yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think, 
I think there I think it would be interesting to discuss the role of, of painting in the show because I think that there there are some examples. I don't think that they're all quite in the folk art category, but many of mm. them are. Mm. And some of them are also um, the Kristen Brach works that we looked at, for example, which kind of look like big Georgia O'Keeffe's in some ways, but they're actually part of her larger oeuvre of um, collective practice and performances and their backdrops and their stage sets and their um, a million other things aside from painting, which I think sort of maybe speaks to painting's role to some extent as perceived by the curators. Right, right. Um. Yeah, I would agree that painting didn't fare very well in this show. And also I feel like if I had to, to choose a painter in the show um, that I'm most connected with, this would be the one as well. I was pleasantly surprised when the obsessive uh, mark making from across the room turned out to be soldiers and skulls and <laughs> cute things. <laughs> Well, um, in this one, I would agree, but in, in the other ones, they were sort of the interiors of, of these forms yeah. that I found. Yeah, right. the, I mean, this yeah. was, was not... The largest yeah. one was the strongest. Yeah, I, yeah I definitely, definitely the largest the one large was the strongest. Yes. There was also that gray one that kind of had almost like a Belmer-esque um, sort of figure that I responded to. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, I mean, it did feel familiar. I didn't feel, I didn't make the connection to sort of San Francisco um, folk art painting, but they, they felt familiar. Okay, great. Uh, Colleen, as we have you on the mic, tell us about um, uh, Guthrie uh, Lonergan. Do we have an image for Guthrie? Yes, we... All right, this one's a much easier um, piece to explain. It was two monitors, and both of them were playing simultaneously um, people's uh, MySpace intro videos. So it was mostly on the younger side, you know, teenagers or maybe 20-something, sort of saying a few words about themselves and then often asking for comments. Um, I found this piece extremely problematic, and for me it kind of represented what I found problematic about the show as a whole. Um, you know, I've, I've seen people's MySpace intro videos on MySpace, and they're fascinating insofar as, as it's always fascinating to watch someone present themselves. And particularly with these videos, there's a kind of awkwardness. I mean, I, you know, I feel like it was definitely an instance that if you were laughing, and many people, myself included, were, you were laughing at the, um, the, the figures depicted in the videos. And I, I guess I, it was hard for me to kind of understand what these little um, vignettes gained by being presented in the new museum, as opposed to my just being able to see them on MySpace. I mean, if anything, they were less interesting to me in that context. And I think the argument that was made for them um, via wall text and what I've, I've read in the curatorial statement was that they, there were these examples of, of young people kind of constructing their identities. Um, but and I think there were, there were 20 MySpace videos chosen in all which is far too small a number to be kind of representative of, of some sort of like zeitgeist, like this is what it looks like when young people present themselves. And there was nothing specific enough about the ones that were chosen that I felt like the artist was making some sort of argument. And so I, f- I felt like I was left in the same position I was with the show as a whole. That there's you know 50 artists under the age of 33, there's no way that you're gonna that that's going to call zeitgeist, that that's going to give you a kind of comprehensive idea of what it looks like or means to be a young artist. But then there also wasn't a kind of specific argument within that being made. So I think my frustrations with the piece kind of, for me, epitomize my frustrations with the show. Uh, Becky, I wasn't even sure it was worth getting frustrated with this piece. It was... Um, uh, I'm easily frustrated. So... Uh, so completely inane. <laughs> uh, 
Yes. <laughs> I, I would agree. I, yeah, I, I didn't see anything very interesting of it. It seems to... I was embarrassed on behalf of <clears throat> my generation, honestly, that um, this is what we put out. Um, yeah, I sort of... I mean, I tried to look at it again when I saw that you were going to be talking about it, and... Um, further viewing was only um, increasingly upsetting, not in a good way. Right. It sort of seemed like a message in a bottle, like this is a time capsule and that um, we'll come back to them in 20 years and say, oh, this is what they were doing then and now it's, it's gone to this completely different place. And um, it just, in, I don't know, I'm thinking about Ryan Tricartan and how he takes mm. a language in MySpace and then totally transfigures it and brings it into... Right. into some new visionary realm, at least for me. And I thought it had some interesting points of reference with, with yeah. Guthrie Lonergan. And in terms of thinking of it as a time capsule, there was um, at one moment in the wall text, it was described as being a quasi-anthropological document, which just was so frustrating to me. And there was also, um, I remember reading in Jerry Salt's review of Younger Than Jesus, who referred to the work, not this piece, but the show itself, as having this anthropological or sociological or um, ethnographic kind of dimension. And I feel like all those words are tossed around in this way that's really... Um, you know, so light. I mean, right, this yeah. piece clearly lacked the rigor of something that would be an anthropological <laughs> document. And to just to talk about it in that way was... Saying, like, now artists are good people, now they're anthropologists, now they're sociologists, right. they're not just artists. I mean, they're doing something useful at last. Yeah, Excellent. and it's, it's, that's, it's not goodness. true. <laughs> but, I mean, that could be a valid theme, I think, in, in terms of other artists like, like Matt Keegan, who, who is mm. doing a lot of anthropological sort of research. Um, Guthrie Lonergan, on the other hand, isn't really doing anything, which I think to me was, was part of the problem. And sure, you could put it in a context of, um, you know, ready-mades, <laughs> maybe, but... Um, well, isn't Salt's happy, isn't Jerry Salt's happiest when art is back where it was uh, in, in the 70s, when, uh, you know, Nobody was nobody was wasting too much time painting, and and everyone was a sociologist and anthropologist and a semiotician. So, anyway, we don't want to, to get sidetracked too much <laughs> with that little observation. Um, unless Ben was passionately burning to support uh, the work of Lonergan, I think it might be good for. Uh, is he? No, no, he's okay. Uh, it might be good for Nora, uh, as as Ryan uh, Tricartin has been mentioned quite frequently oh, yes. so far to uh, describe um, for us uh, his installation. Okay. Here is an installation shot. Well, um, um, describe the room for us okay. and what's, well, there, what's going on. There are on. two rooms, and um, one to me kind of resembles a suburban rec room. There are um, some Brita filters around, kind of very ugly colors, mauve and green, and some plastic plants and... Uh, um, there's an exercise machine. Another room resembles kind of the interior of a plane. There's luggage hanging from the ceiling. This is coming up. And um, the videos themselves kind of en engage you in a way as if you are um, within the video itself. Um, the, the artist is um, one of a group of many people who are kind of taking on roles, performing. It's incredibly loud, bombastic, um, hallucinatory. Um, and it's... It's, it's kind of, it's very verbally um, exhausting. I think a lot of people left the room when I was there, but I gave it a lot of time. And um, I was really kind of brought into this, this world where it was almost like a, a MySpace, YouTube, 
um, kind of internet um, nightmare. And, um, but in the, in the end, to me, what brought it back to a place where I could understand, I was thinking of it in terms of theater and thinking of it uh, in terms of kind of almost, not like a participatory theater, but a, a place where I, I sort of saw our culture being reflected in what Ryan Tricartan was doing and sort of seeing it as like a mirror world to our world. And um, it was, it's disturbing, and, but it's also the art that I found the most contemporary art. And um, I think it's almost kind of defies discussing because it seems so new to me. And I didn't feel that with any other pieces in it. It's an immediate response to it. Uh, I feel... I feel like my my response to Ryan G. Carton's work has kind of followed my response to most pop songs. Like the very first instant of having seen it, I was like, oh no, I'm not gonna like that because everyone's gonna like that. And then in the sort of yeah. second instance, I thought, oh, I really like it, you know? It's catchy, yeah, that I could totally dance understand. to this. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and, but I feel like I'm now, sort of at the third, I mean, having known his work for a while now, um, at the third step of just fatigue where, um, you know, it, it seems hard to me to imagine like how Ryan Tree Carton can kind of evolve as an artist because the sort of premise of the work is already everything, like the volume, both literally and kind of metaphorically, is completely turned up. And having seen now at this point, you know, maybe five or so incarnations of Ryan Tree Carton, I feel like I'm, I know the Ryan Tree Carton shtick and I'm looking for giant chocolate sculptures. <laughs> Could, is it a, a point Paul, of Paul po- possible evolution? <laughs> McCarthy is, is, a, is the right point of reference, That's, isn't it? Yeah, ben? I sort of Abjection felt, and yeah. overload. But also you've got things like Bruce Nauman's video of himself jumping up and down as a chicken coming to mind with the, with the, uh, with, I, I with the video. I and then Jason Rhodes or somebody with the installation. Yeah. So yeah. Is, are we, are, is this a redux artist or is this, is this a bad boy? Or is, is there an energy here that uh, is going to move forward? I think, I think both. He did... Um, pull me in and keep me there despite the disgust factor but I didn't really see how it was so different from what um, uh, you know Paul McCarthy does or um, Jason Rhodes I'm, I'm sorry Paul McCarthy or Jason Rhodes um, I didn't see how it really differentiated itself uh, from that although it did pull me in so a little bit of both I wasn't o- really won over by him though I was held there watching Loud and unpleasant is how Ben uh, previously loud and, loud and unpleasant, des- yeah. described it, uh, Becky. Uh, was that your overwhelming sensation? What did you get from it? Um, yeah, there's definitely a lot of that. I think it's also just entertaining um, once you sort of allow yourself to be entertained in a museum, um, which, which I think, you know, at first we kind of go into this environment and we're thinking... Well, what is what is this supposed to be about? But if you sort of relax, then it it really it becomes becomes quite funny, and um, you know, it like again like a kind of theater, I think. Um, but I think that he's pushing a lot of the elements in terms of in terms of internet culture and and things that maybe Guthrie Lonergan is interested in to to an actual degree where he's t- where he's turning it into an, an artwork. Like mm-hmm. I I definitely. Um, I take it as an artwork. I'm not, it's not necessarily my favorite artwork in the world, but um, I, I respect what he's doing, I think. Great. Okay, well, um, another moment for the audience. It's a very hot evening here, so thank you for sticking it out, no pun intended. And thank you to my uh, panel for so 
um, heroically looking at such a huge show and coming to uh, intelligent and perceptive conclusions on, on eight of the artists in particular. Um, audience, this is a chance for you to share some views on the last four artists we've been looking at. Uh, uh, Sitter, uh, uh, Ziokovsky, uh, Longagon, and Triarkin. Trikartin. Trikartin. Yes. I'm from a generation that's more than twice 33. And so I went to see the exhibit the other day, and I had much difficulty with it. Nobody mentioned the banana peel, that uh, banana that gets eaten every morning by a member of the museum, and then the peel gets dropped on the floor, and the little sign says, you know, uh, talks about the banana. Uh, for me, there were a whole lot of uh, videos and a whole lot of installations. And I had a strange sense of when I walked around the museum that nobody made any eye contact. The people who came to see the exhibit, nobody made any eye contact and there was no verbal contact either with any of the visitors. And as they went to see each of the exhibits, each person, nobody smiled, nobody looked Unpleasant, but they just looked a little numb, I thought. Um, was this a question? I'm not sure from what I heard. Somehow, what I saw was a whole lot of organized chaos. Uh, there seemed to be a, a disconnect and a lot of numbness. And I realized I'm from a different generation. And so, was this what it was like when Picasso came into being or when? in the 1800s, the Impressionist came. So here's this part that I, quite frankly, don't understand. And maybe it goes from being unaccepted to acceptance at some other time. OK, thank you. That's a very uh, considered and, and, and personal view of the whole show, which is definitely welcome from others, or specific comments on the four artists that we've been uh, thinking about. Within the idea of an age-delimited show, um, there's kind of an idea of nostalgia, of looking back to a time when, you know, from the standpoint of like the establishment that's curating the show, looking back to a time when you were that age. Um, and obviously, as you know, people talk about art, we always talk about it in terms of other artists who have made other work before these people. And I was curious if there was anything that jumped out of the panelists as, I don't know, you know shockingly original stuff that was confounding. I mean, I, I, that's a high bar to set. Well, it all did seem like you know, stuff that was referencing other stuff that they learned about in art school. I thought I, I thought I felt something at work in the show that I hadn't seen in some of the larger recent survey shows, the Biennials and others. Um, I felt like I felt an actu actually a struggle, sort of at work within the show, um, a certain uh, an attempt at um, some very personal expressions being made, sort of um, uh, hung right next to and exhibited with uh, more ironic work that I'm actually more accustomed to seeing. Perhaps this is just um, wishful thinking on my part, but I thought I saw something new at work there, and it may have had to do with the international dimension of the show, which separates it from other recent surveys. Any I other thought, well, I thought there was question. kind of seriousness and also kind of a, a melancholyness there that uh, that I wouldn't expect at a show of young artists. It didn't seem just like another uh, biennial, Whitney biennial. It seemed to have kind of underlying s sort of 
I don't know, sort of like streams of sadness there. Um, but um, also an kind of idea that came into mind was that it was sort of like a big science project. Like each artist had a kind of, it was like a room of different science projects and there was this kind of half done aspect to some things where there was an idea concept um, but then um, maybe it hadn't come like fully there or it was just a piece from a performance. There was sort of a, a piece-like quality to some things, which is a problem, I thought. Look at you. Um, yeah. Um, following up from this question, is there any feeling that uh, uh, the new museum as, as, as an institution that was uh, an offshoot of a kind of rebellion against an offshoot of the Whitney, as uh, with a show like this, is um, taking the mantle from, from the Whitney with its biennials. Uh, Colleen. Do well, I, I will say that I know I've been to the New Museum far more frequently in the last year than I have the Whitney. And I think that that's not a bold statement. <laughs> you know, I think probably a lot of people could say the same. I mean, the, you know, I found the show really problematic. I found the Unmonumental show really problematic. But they also continually, continually come up in conversation. And that's, you know, that's mm. useful. Mm. Great. OK. Uh, some other, uh, one or two more comments from the audience. Uh, there's a, um, uh, yeah, OK. OMG. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I, I just uh, was looking at someone else who had their hand up before. But please go ahead. Please go ahead. Lady there in the black, yeah. Wait for the mic, please. Hi, I just had a question about the uh, Katarina's uh, Estella show. The dribble that you said was dribble. I thought. Oh, I well, oh. Yeah. Karen Sider. Right. Karen. Because there's also different, Katarina. It's a different yeah. artist. you get to decide about the Picasso question, incidentally. <laughs> uh, gentleman there, uh, and I think that might be our last. A uh, question for the panel that was brought up. Uh, 
part by your comments about the one you know, about painting in the show, and then also, um, David, your very revelatory comment that perhaps the gay art piece would be best uh, experienced uh, the darkness of one's own television and living room. Um, I'm, I'm curious what you think the role of the male DVD and the email JPEG was in the construction of this show. Whether I would be alone in thinking that the work that fared best was the work that could be properly conveyed by those two means. And that a lot of the work, like painting, that maybe suffers through that sort of transfer um, seems to suffer as well. Maybe that says something about how they went about their selection method or just the eyes of the curators or what they had in mind. But I wonder if you think there's anything about this show that really does have something to do with the means of electronic communication that were so integral, as you said, to its construction. If I could just quickly, I, I think that's a great question, and I think absolutely. Um, it struck me in looking at AIDS 3D's work that um, just in uh, researching the different artists online, I was basically making use of the tools that they advocate as the primary tools now relevant to the art practice, and I couldn't ignore that fact just in preparing for this panel. So I was very much struck by the way uh, information is now transmitted in the way a JPEG functions to give us information about how we're supposed to think about art. Yeah, I would definitely agree. I think that, um, I think that, I mean, this is the case with a lot of contemporary art, but that, that the explanations and the artist statements and the um, wall texts often are more informative about the work than the piece that you actually see. So I think that um, there were probably a lot of descriptions and statements and material that were sent to, to curators and they may not have seen works, but it, it sounded conceptually sound and therefore it was, um, Included, so I that that is what it is. Though I think that's true of um, of of a lot of art that we see now. Um, I don't know if it's more true in this show than in others, but yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, Guthrie um, Lunergan, who kind of got slaughtered on this panel, I looked at that MySpace um, piece within the context of his website, which is all similarly kind of jokey um, little pieces and thoroughly in enjoyed it in that context. And I, I think, I don't know, I have a theory about painting that bad painting reproduces well and good painting reproduces poorly. And I feel a lot of the painting in the show probably reproduced really well. It's a question about the validity of the um, the museum and the gallery space now too. If this meant, if this work is better seen in your own home, as David mentioned, then you have to wonder about uh, visiting the museums to see this work. Well, I think I mean the piece that I found most affecting, the Ryan Tricartan piece, use um, is sort of is sort of bridging these two worlds because uh, Tricartan has his uh, his own YouTube site. You can go to it. You can kind of interface with it at home. Um, feel, but it also experiencing his piece in in the museum. It's for me. It really brought back an older idea of of theater and of of being engaged with something that really came from one person's vision. And um, he was almost like a director directing people. And that that to me it brought back ideas of like film and theater and as those are you know very modern, old. Now they're old ideas. So sort of bridging that. Yeah, I think definitely. I think w an artist like Ryan Tricartan that, that creates an installation to accompany the video makes it essential that you're there, whereas 
I think that Luke Fowler's piece did not benefit from its presentation. It was, it was a terrible context to sit and, and listen to, to that work. Um, I think it's a really interesting work, and I'm curious to see more of his work, but I think that I'd rather have it on a collected DVD than to, than to be sitting in a loud gallery um, trying to focus on it and trying to make out the you know, poor quality of sound. And it's, you know, it's, it's not... Correct, really. Well, the review panel sent us to the new museum, and the new museum sends us to the internet and home. Uh, now I think it's the time to party. So thank you very much, everybody. Good job.